0: If you have your bibles this morning, we want to turn to Romans chapter 1 and as we do that, the children are dismissed this morning for their services if you'd like to make your way to the children's chapel. It was 2 weeks ago, that or actually 3 weeks ago now that we were in this particular text that we're going to go back to this morning. We had a break for Thanksgiving Sunday, and then last Sunday we were away, so we're back in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and I anticipate that at least one more Sunday will remain here in these verses. And the reason for that is because as we walk through the book of Romans now, and we've been in it for several weeks, this is really the theme of Romans. If you were going to take all of Romans and just boil it down to a theme, it would be verse 16. Let me read that verse to you. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So that's the theme of Romans. And then the next verse, in verse 17, let's read it. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The first verse, 16, announces the theme. The next verse is a general exposition of that theme. Just a, just a short exposition of what verse 16 has said being the theme. And then as you launch into the rest of the book, basically all of that is support to that theme and that short exposition. All of Romans, Paul is building a defense for what he says in those two particular verses. And that's why it's important that we spend some time in these verses. Make sure that we get that foundation underneath us as we launch into the rest of the book. And so we'll spend, as I said, at least another Sunday there. Now, last week, we we centered, or, or three weeks ago, we centered on those verses, but we centered particularly on verse 16, where it says this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul is writing, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The question we stopped to ponder that particular Sunday is, why say that? Why why put it in that kind of phraseology regarding the gospel? Why does Paul say, I'm not ashamed? I think the reason is because there's a temptation to be shamed. He wouldn't say, I'm not if there weren't some temptation that rises up for all believers to, to be shamed by the gospel and by those who respond to that gospel as it goes forth, those who would come against, those who have embraced that gospel. So, so basically the reason that Paul says, I'm not ashamed, is because there had to be a temptation for Paul to feel shame in his ministry doesn't mean Paul gave into it. We don't know that. We know others did. We know that Timothy did. And others that surrounded Paul gave into it at times, didn't fully stay in it, but there were times where they backed away from their de- declaration of the gospel because of a shaming effect of others putting upon them, put upon them. One of the quotes that we read and I th- want to go back to it was from from Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on the book of Romans. He spent years in the book of Romans in, uh, in his pulpit. But this is what he says about this text. Listen listen carefully to what he writes. But why should in- anybody ever be ashamed of the gospel? That's the question that Lloyd-Jones asks. Why should anybody ever be ashamed of the gospel? Do you know anything about this, my friends? It seems to me, to be a very important question, Jones says. And this is what he goes on to say. And I am very ready to assert that if you have never known this particular temptation, then it is probably due to the fact, not that you are an exceptionally good Christian, but that your understanding of the Christian message has never been clear. That's an incredibly strong statement. In other words, he says, the reason you haven't felt a temptation to shame, it's not because you're such a great Christian. It's actually because you don't really understand the message of the gospel clearly. Let me substantiate that, he goes on to say, it is never an impressive thing to hear a Christian saying, ever since I believed, I have never been tempted to doubt. I have never been tempted to shame. It is not good to say that. Whether it was actually true in the case of the apostle Paul or not, as I already said, it was also, it was true of Timothy. And if you read the lives of saints, you will find that throughout centuries, they have been attacked grievously along this particular line. This temptation to let others shame them for their declaration or embracing of the gospel. Now, think about that for a moment, and then we're going to move on a little farther. But think about Paul. Paul was a a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul was was well-trained in his Jewish tradition, in his Jewish faith. He had spent years in training. He knew the Old Testament well, very well. No one who would have attained the status that Paul had would not have. Paul, um, Paul knew the roots of what now is Christianity very, very well. And he's the one who wrote these words. He says, we preach Christ crucified. This is Paul. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Paul wrote those words. He knew he knew that those who he preached this message to, if they were Jews, it would be a stumbling block. They would, they would heap shame or attempt to heap shame on him because they would see it as a stumbling block. He knew the Gentiles to whom he was going as an apostle would say, you're crazy, Paul. You're crazy to believe this, to believe this thing about this carpenter who grew up in a no-name town is the Messiah. Paul knew that that would be the response. Paul also knew that he was going to cultures that were very cultured. I mean, the Romans were steeped in Greek culture. He was taking a message to people like the people of Rome. Learned people. And he knew they would attempt to shame him. He knew what he was, what he was getting into. He knew what was going to happen. In fact, when Paul was chosen on the road to Damascus by God to be his apostle, one of the things that God told the believers around him is I'm going to show Paul how much he will suffer for the sake of this name. Paul knew the stakes. And he knew the oppression would be great, and there were many who would mock him. And so when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he doesn't say it lightly. He doesn't say it in a vacuum. So the question really is, this morning we want to talk about, how did Paul push against that? He knew it would be there. He experienced it. Whether he gave in to it ever or not, we don't know. Again, others did. But he certainly had a way to push back against that. He he declares it in this text. I want to look at several of those things of how Paul pushed back against the shaming effect of following Christ that would come to him. First of all, it says there, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God. First thing that held Paul steady was he knew it was the power of God. He knew the gospel was the power of God. It's important to understand it's, it, it, that we insert that word gospel. The gospel is the power of God, not Paul. Paul knew his weakness. In fact, Paul wrote things like, his power is made perfect in my weakness. Paul felt his weakness. He felt the enormity of the task of going to the Romans and others who, who he knew, as we've already said, would push back on what he said, would attempt to shame him, would, would most would say, it's folly, it's foolishness, it's craziness, Paul, this message that you bring. So Paul went in weakness, but he, he knew that the gospel was the power, that in the gospel, it's why it's so important that we get the gospel right, because that gospel is the power of God. It is the way God seeks to cause people who want to shame it, who want to call it folly and foolish and a stumbling block, how God takes that gospel and opens the eyes of people to, to see it's not foolishness, it's not folly, it's... it. it ceases to be a stumbling block to some. God does that. And he was confident that God would do that. His mission was to go and declare it. His mission was not to be ashamed of it, not to let the shaming effect of others pushed upon him to cause him to draw back. Because he knew if he declared that gospel that God would cause it to change the hearts of some. That God was calling out a people And there would be people, yes, who would mock him, people who would try to shame him, but there also would be people where that gospel would be the power of God to salvation for them. Satan will continually attempt to try to get you and I and all Christians to pull back. As as that message is declared, there will be people who will mock it And and the attempt of Satan is to get us to be silent, not to quit believing it, but just quit declaring it. And the moment we give into that, and Paul knew that, the moment he gives into that, the power is gone because the power isn't in him, the power is in the gospel. And if the gospel can be silenced, then the power can be stopped. And Paul wasn't about to let that happen. The gospel was the power of God. So he continued to push through it. He continued to declare, I will not be dissuaded by the shaming effect of others upon me. The second thing that caused Paul, it was the power of God to salvation. It it is the way in which God has chosen to save a people. This gospel, the, the power of this gospel as it goes forth and it opens the eyes of some, those whose eyes are opened, who don't see it as folly, who don't see it as a stumbling block, God brings them to life and, and they begin to see the preciousness of that message. And it is the gospel that does that for salvation. The heart of what causes the world to scoff is this salvation. Salvation. And and the exclusivity of the claims is what really brings on the pressure from others. The heart of the gospel is the exclusivity of its claims, that this gospel, this gospel is the power of God to salvation. There aren't multiple gospels. Christianity doesn't believe that. But this gospel, and and that's part of what brings the pressure, isn't it? Isn't that what will increasingly bring the pressure in our age and does increasingly bring the pressure? When you begin to talk about the exclusivity of this gospel, the exclusivity of this gospel of being the thing that brings reconciliation between man and God, that there's only one way that that reconciliation can happen through Jesus Christ. That's what Paul meant when he said it's the power of God to salvation. It is the thing. There aren't, there aren't fifteen ways that that reconciliation can happen according to Christianity. But the heart of Christianity is there is one way that that can happen. It's through that gospel. The gospel of Christ and what he accomplished. And that's what brings the pressure. That's what will increasingly bring the pressure of those who want to shame you. And they will. I, I just, I just say it flat out. As we go farther and farther um, in our world, it's not going to get easier. Now, certainly there could be some awakening that would change masses of people. That's happened through history. But more and more, it is the exclusivity of the gospel that is causing people to come against it. Now, if, if you want to believe Christianity is just a matter of living a better life, People will buy into that. But the moment that you begin to talk about the gospel being the only way that God and man can be reconciled, the moment you go there, you can experience and will experience people attempting to shame that and call it foolishness and call it folly. Interestingly, Paul goes on, he, he doesn't back away from that. The gospel is the power, the, the gospel message, and we'll come to that in a moment. We'll look at that message, we'll look at the content of that, because that's another reason, but not yet. The gospel is the power of God to salvation, but he, he doesn't he doesn't back away now because he says, For everyone who believes. Part of the reason that Paul didn't let it silence him is because he believed the gospel was the power of salvation, the way reconciliation can happen. And it was for everyone who believes, both Jew and Greek. Look what it says in the text. The power of God to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Basically, what he's saying there is to the entire world. He's not leaving anybody out. You were either Jew or you were Greek. You were Jew or you were Gentile. It's the same today. Jew or Gentile. And, and what he's saying is this salvation is for everyone. It isn't that certain segments of our world have this way that they're reconciled to God and other segments have this way they're reconciled to God. Paul knew, as he declares here, it's for all mankind. This message, this message is God's power of salvation to everyone. Paul was no respecter of person. Uh, he went to everyone didn't matter what the socioeconomic class was. Paul took this message everywhere because he knew this message was for everyone. It was no just select few that Christianity was for, but for the world. It was the promise that came to Abraham. Remember the promise that came to Abraham in the Old Testament? Paul knew it well, that the promise to Abraham was through his seed, all the nations would be blessed. When Paul was confronted on the Damascus Road and, and Jesus appeared to him, he realized that this was the seed. Jesus was the seed of Abraham that would bless the entire world by bringing a way in which man could be reconciled to God through the work of Jesus Christ. It all became clear to Paul and it applied to all the world to all mankind, to all nations. Christianity is not um, something for one nation, but for all nations. There will be one day people from every tribe and tongue and nation before the throne of God, worshiping and declaring, this is not folly, this is not foolishness, this was not a stumbling block, but it is the power of God to salvation for me and for all those around me. That's the message of the gospel. No one is beyond the grace of God and no one will experience the grace of God except through Christ. Paul went to the everyone and he went to everyone because he knew it was a message for everyone. Everyone needed to hear it that God might call out those that he was going to bring unto himself. The fourth reason that Paul didn't give in to it, the fourth reason Is that it was a revelation from God. Look at the text here. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. For in the right for in it, in verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. What's it mean by it revealed? Well, certainly there's a sense in which it, it wasn't it was hidden. Or it wasn't totally clear. It it is not the kind of idea that it had never been talked about before. That that wouldn't be true. That wouldn't be a true way to say it. Because the book of Hebrews um, it says God spoke through the prophets in various ways and at various times, but in these last days he has spoken through his son. So what the inference of that being revealed is that it's made clear. When Christ came, all of all of the Old Testament revelation, which were pictures to show us a greater reality, all of that became clear. All of that became clear for Paul on the Damascus Road when he is encountered by Jesus there and called to be an apostle. It all came together for Paul. A few weeks ago, as we were walking through the introduction to Romans, we talked about how Paul was uniquely situated, uniquely situated to be the apostle to the Gentiles. All of what he had learned in in his Jewish upbringing and being a Pharisee among Pharisees, as he would say it, all of that God used when he was confronted on the Damascus Road and realized that it all came together in Christ. He he had a, a unique background to go to the Gentiles, a unique person who could go and defend The fact that the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone believes for the Jew first and then the Greek. Because of all that training, because of all the learning that Paul had. One of the points we made back then was the question, this, this question, which we'll talk about more as we go on, but did, did God choose Paul? Because he looked down and said, there's Paul. He's had all this training because he's had all this training. I'm going to choose him because he's uniquely situated to take this gospel to the Gentiles. Or did God, from the very beginning, cause Paul to have all of his training so that then when God was ready, he would choose Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So so in other words, is it because Paul somehow merited it That he had gained all this knowledge and so God looked down and said, because you have all this knowledge, I'm going to choose you, Paul. Or did God first choose Paul and then make sure that Paul had all of the preparation he needed to be the apostle to the Gentiles? I think it's the latter. But Paul was uniquely situated, uniquely situated to be the one who would say the gospel is the power of God to salvation everyone who believes. And he was not going to let the shame of those who wanted to heap it upon him keep him from that message. He was committed to it because he so clearly saw how it all came together in Christ. God used Paul in powerful ways as he went to the Gentiles. But it's not because Paul didn't feel that temptation, that shame that came. He had it again and again and again. You read the book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and talk about all of the hardships, all of the ways that Paul suffered for the name of Christ. All of the opposition that he faced. What was that opposition? But people trying to shame him, trying to snuff him out, trying to to treat Paul as a fool for what he was doing. But Paul again says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to salvation for all people. There's not one way for some and one way for another, but for all people, both Jew and Gentile. And it's been revealed. God has fully revealed it now and it centers in Christ. But there's one more reason, the most powerful reason of all why Paul would not Be ashamed of the gospel because he knew the content of the gospel. He knew the content of what that gospel that was the power of God contained. This is, this is what the book of Romans is about. This is what Paul will now, as we go to verse 18 or verse 19 and, and on or 18 and on is, is what he will unpack the rest of the book. The content. Of why that gospel could be a gospel, why it could be good news. and that is the righteousness of God is revealed. It, it's revealed, but it's because the righteousness of God is revealed. now this this is an important point and and hang with me here because this is key. That righteousness here it says, the righteousness of God is revealed. What does it mean by the righteousness of God? Does it mean the righteousness of God as an attribute of God? In other words, is, is what's revealed that God is righteous? I mean, that's, that's one of the ways you could describe God. He's righteous. He's absolutely righteous. He's perfectly holy. Is that what the gospel reveals? That he's perfectly holy? I mean, that's true. He is But is that what it's talking about here when it says the righteousness of God is revealed? That this is the gospel of God as we, as we talked about early, earlier that needs to be heralded? Needs to be declared? Is what Paul was not ashamed of? No, I don't think so. Because if it were, this is key, if it were, if it meant the righteousness of god is an attribute of what who god is in himself just think for a moment would that be good news would that be good news no it wouldn't that's not good news it is not good news that god is absolutely holy if you're on the backside of the cross It's not, it's not good news. In fact, that's what Luther's struggle was all about. Luther struggled greatly about that. Because the truth of the matter is, if, if that's what it means here in this text, that the righteousness of God is revealed, that is, that is incredibly bad news. Because it leaves us condemned. It leaves us condemned. It just reiterates the condemnation. In fact, one is written, it would be the most terrifying and the most alarming thing that we could ever discover the righteousness of God as an attribute. That God is holy and he demands perfection. Is that good news? That's not good news, folks. It's not good news for any of us. It is, it is not the gospel of God. It is not what that text means there. And Luther realized that, uh, in his life. It was the thing that changed the experience for Luther. Let me, let me read Luther's experience to you a little bit. Luther was teaching the book of Romans. Luther was struggling and what he what he kept coming back to was these words for in it the righteousness of God is revealed and he kept thinking about that righteousness as an attribute of God as what God is like and it terrified him he says i labored diligently and anxiously as to how to understand Paul's words in Romans 117 where he says the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel I sought long and knocked anxiously for the expression the righteousness of God block the way you see he thought it was just a description of god's character and of god's being and as he stood before this revelation of god who is light in whom no darkness at all a god who is so just that he cannot even look upon sin as he saw this righteousness of god he felt it was impossible he says that this expression, the righteousness of God, blocked the way of salvation for him. And he went further and said, as often as I read that declaration, I wished, wished always that God had not made the gospel known. Now, what you understand is, he thought the gospel was, these words, that God is righteous, perfectly righteous. That's what he thought the gospel was. So he's saying, I wish he'd never revealed that because it only made him feel more condemnation in his life. He went on, he said further, he said, as often as I read that declaration, I wished always that God had not made the gospel known. You see, he thought that it meant that in the Old Testament there was a revelation of the righteousness of God. You have it in the Ten Commandments and the moral law, yes. He really thought that it was an imperfect revelation of it, but that... It is only in Christ that you get the full revelation and one which is infinitely greater. The Old Testament says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This says, love your enemies and so on. In the tremendous exposition on the Sermon on the Mount, Luther said, I saw it and I wished always that God had not made the gospel known because this fuller revelation of the righteousness of God seemed to make me utterly hopeless and helpless and I did not know what to do with myself, the righteousness of God blocked the way. What he means by that, there was a revelation of this righteousness in the Old Testament of God, but now what he thought was the gospel was this further revelation of Jesus coming and teaching the Sermon on the Mount and saying, murder is even if you hate your brother you're guilty of murder you see how he felt like jesus just amplified that righteousness and he said it'd been better if i'd have never known that because it just put me under greater condemnation it just made me more convinced of how righteous god was not less and he felt the full weight of that condemnation just fall heavier and heavier and heavier upon him but The good news is that Luther realized he was wrong. He realized that this statement, the righteousness of God is revealed, was not about the attributes of God in his righteousness, but rather was about a righteousness that comes from God, a righteousness that actually satisfies God's demand of perfection. In the gospel, God provides what he requires of us, righteousness. Jesus accomplished it. Jesus accomplished it by perfectly fulfilling the law's demands. You see, when, when Luther first looked at this, the righteousness of God, all he could see was the demands of the law. All he could see was the demands fuller, uh, f- more fully revealed in the Sermon on the Mount. That the law says you shall not murder... But when Jesus came, he said, again, if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. You see how it just kept pressing in upon him. And then all of a sudden he realized that what this righteousness is talking about is a righteousness that God accomplishes for us and will give to us. The gospel that it talks about, or the righteousness that it talks about here is a righteousness obtained by Christ. What we know about the life of Jesus is that not only did he die for our sin, we talked about that this morning in my Sunday School class, he, he died for our sin, which is the passive obedience of Christ. He died, our our sin was put upon him, he took the penalty for the sin of all who would believe, that's the passive work of Christ. But the active work of Christ is that before he died, He perfectly lived. He perfectly lived. He perfectly fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law so that he might obtain a righteousness that he then could give to us. That he, in fact, could become our righteousness. That he could fully fulfill the law that we couldn't and haven't and won't so that he then could provide a righteousness for us. That's what this righteousness is talking about. Not the righteousness by which God is righteous, but the righteousness that Jesus accomplished in fully fulfilling the law and willing to give to all who would believe. A righteousness that comes from God. Do you see the difference in that? Luther knew the demands of the law. But he also knew he couldn't fulfill those demands. And and the more that it came to us in the New Testament, it just amplified. He knew what the law was, but then Jesus extrapolated that law again in the issue of murder. You shall not murder, but even to hate your brother, you've murdered your brother. Jesus realized that Jesus fully fulfilled that and that the righteousness talked about here the reason it's good news and not bad news is because it's a righteousness that God will give to us that's what the rest of Romans is about that's what the rest of the defense that Paul will build here is that God in fact has done this and again and again and again he will talk about that in the book of Romans that's good news folks that's good news that he will give us a righteousness. The word that we'll talk about as we walk through Romans is that he will impute and does impute that righteousness to our account. He credits it to our account, to all who will believe and rest in him as their savior. He takes their sin and he gives them his righteousness. Songs we sing, talks about being dressed in righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. What righteousness? The righteousness of Christ. It's why Paul, and I close with this this morning, it's why Paul said this to us and writes this in the book of Philippians chapter 3. It's the reason that Paul didn't give in to the shame. It's the reason that he said, I am not ashamed of this gospel. He writes this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Part of that loss was reputation. I mean, Paul was learned. He was steeped in learning. But he was mocked. He was ridiculed. He, he, he gave it all up. I suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, the righteousness that Christ accomplished and will give to all who will look to him. That's good news, folks. That's the glory of the good news. That's the gospel of God. And it's why we need to herald. It's why we do not give in the temptation to let others shame us away from it. It's why we declare that it it is exclusive. It is exclusive in the sense that it's the only way. It is not exclusive in the sense that it is only for a certain few. It's both Jew and Greek alone. It's for the whole world. And how will that world hear? In fact, Paul will deal with it in Romans chapter 10. How will that world hear that message? Except we go and declare it to them. And if we give in to the shaming effect, those who would want to silence the message and call it folly and foolishness and stumbling block, then it won't be heard. Paul knew that. I hope we know that. And I hope God will help us to see it as the power of God to salvation because God gives us a righteousness. We'll talk more about that. We'll come back to that again and again. If, If even what we shared this morning isn't fully clear, we'll we'll go back over it again and again because Paul just continually hits that theme all the way through the book of Romans. It's our hope. It was Paul's hope. Let's pray together. Father, I pray this morning that, that you will help us. I pray, Father, that, that if, if what has been shared thus far was confusing and not fully understandable, that, Lord, you'll just give us fuller insight and understanding of that as we walk through the book of Romans but we declare this morning Lord that that we are looking away from our own righteousness to the righteousness of Christ it's in his righteousness in the righteousness that he provides that our hope is found in Jesus name we pray Amen Amen. worship team is going to lead us in a closing song let's stand together and sing
1: Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son, Precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. Jesus, my Redeemer, Name above all names. Precious Lamb of God, Messiah Hope for sinners slain and Thank you, oh my Father For giving us your Son And leaving your Spirit to When I stand in glory, I will see His face, and there I'll serve my King forever in that holy place. your son and living your spirit